So, what is the book of Exodus all about? Uh, I suspect if we know the book, and of course most of us have been uh, looking at it for the last uh, number of weeks, uh, something um, uh, that we would say, pretty central, is it's, it's all about God's great rescue plan. But actually, when you read the book of Exodus, the the story of Israel's rescue from uh, slavery in Egypt, great as it is, is basically finished by chapter 15. And there are 25 more chapters after that. The last 15 chapters are mainly devoted to the the building of this great tent that um, uh, Catherine was uh, reading about, called the Tabernacle. There's more in Exodus than just God's rescue plan. A clue, actually, to the focus of the book comes in the great summary that we looked at a couple of uh, weeks ago in Exodus chapter 19 of God's intention, his purpose for Israel. Verse 4 reads, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God brought them to himself. He, 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 he came into a relationship with the Israelites. More than half of the book of Exodus is not about the rescue great as it is from slavery in Egypt. It is about the consequence of that rescue, the purpose for which God rescued them, that they might enjoy his presence forever. And as such, actually the whole book of Exodus very much anticipates the Christian story. 1 Peter 3 uh, verse 18 points out that God rescued us and now for us through Christ's death on the cross for a purpose. Let me uh, read it to you. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So uh, what God was doing in the Exodus in 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 a foreshadowed kind of way for the nation of Israel God did finally through Jesus in a complete way. So, the story of the Exodus, in one sense, is our story. It foreshadows our story. And the second half of Exodus, or the second two-thirds of Exodus, is as important as the first third. Yes, it is vitally important Believers, that you understand how that God rescued you and how God rescued you. He rescued you from the penalty of your sins but through Christ's death on the cross as our Passover lamb, as the New Testament describes it. But what did he rescue you for? He rescued you to enjoy his presence, to bring you to him self. And um, though I would love to spend weeks and weeks on it, we're going to just have to sketch out extremely briefly, frustratingly uh, uh, briefly, uh, I I suspect, um, what the building of the tabernacle 
teaches us about living in the presence of God. And that is not only important for Israelites, you see, that is important for us, and I'll show you why. The first answer then to the question, what's it like to live in the presence of God? The first answer that the tabernacle gives is a slightly surprising one. It's easy. You see, the tabernacle, there's a a diagram I've, uh, I've found from elsewhere. The tabernacle was a great tent modelled on, 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 on royal tents of mon- nomadic kings of uh, um, uh, Moses' day. There was a courtyard, an outer courtyard, screened off by curtains, um, and then within it there was a sort of covered tent proper with two rooms, a front room, um, uh, which was a slightly more public space for an average king, and then a, then a rear room, which was his uh, his private residence. In uh, uh, in the Bible, the tabernacle, the the front room, is called the the the, the holy place, and the back room is called the most holy place. But it is a very recognisable design of royal tents that were common. And that introduces us, really, to something really rather surprising. God is committed, declares the tabernacle, to living amongst his people as their king. You ask an Israelite, where's your God? And they say, well, in one sense, he's the Lord of the whole universe, he's the unutterably high God, but actually he's over there too. That's an extraordinary surprise. And more than that, because he's in a mobile tent that can be um, actually packed up and carried with them, uh, uh, although there are very careful rules for that, it means God is committed to going with them wherever they go as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, when... uh, uh, Moses, at the end of his life, is, is um, reflecting on uh, what God has taught him in his life. He says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us? God, God's come down. He's not only rescued them, he's determined to stay amongst them. In a fascinating way, it anticipates, you see, the story of Jesus. In John chapter 1, John describes Jesus as, um, in the NIV translation, it's uh, dwelt amongst us, but but it's literally Jesus tabernacled amongst us. Jesus, as God the Son, came and dwelt amongst us. And the Bible makes plain that though Jesus has... um, Uh, ascended back into heaven in one sense, by his spirit he is still very much present amongst us, even now. Revelation chapter 1, for instance, where John has his eyes open for a moment to what's really going on in the world. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described as walking amongst the lampstands, using very tabernacle-like language, because as you'll see, there's a there's a lampstand that features in the tabernacle. Jesus is still walking around amongst his churches, still with us here today. 
You can still say, if someone asks you, where is your God? You can say, well, actually, he's here. He promised where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst. It is the most extraordinary thing, if you think about it, that the unutterably high, holy creator of the whole universe should commit to being amongst his people. But from beginning to end, he does. What's it like to have God uh, living amongst you? In one sense, it's incredibly simple. If you're gathered together in God's name, if you are God's people, he's there, says the tabernacle. And the second thing uh, uh, it says uh, that the tabernacle declares very strongly that we need to look at at slightly more length is it is amazing to have this God dwelling amongst us. Absolutely uh, astonishing. Uh, in, in three different ways, let me uh, um, try to enumerate them. In one sense, as you go towards the, the holy of holies, the, the smaller back room, which is uh, uh, the, the small square at the, uh, at the top there, in, in one sense, you are approaching perfection. So, outside there is a courtyard. Unfortunately, that's not quite the scale, but the courtyard was a hundred cubits long and fifty cubits wide. It was a, it was a rectangle, twice as long uh, uh, as it was wide. Um, uh, it's described, for instance, in, in Exodus 27, verses 9 and following. Make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side shall be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases and with silver bands on the posts. And the west side shall be fifty cubits and the east side shall, shall uh, towards the sunrise, shall also be fifty cubits. It's wide, he says. Okay, this is this is a, a this is a rectangle, two squares. Note um, the holy place, the front room of the tent proper, mirrors that in one sense. It is another rectangle, this time twenty cubits long. Uh, cubits are about a, an arm length, okay? 20 cubits long by 10 cubits, but this time it's enclosed, it's 10 cubits high. So it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it, it's a, a bi-cubic cuboid, isn't it? Mathematicians, probably. It is, it is, it is like two perfect cubes put, uh, put together. And as such, it's getting closer to a sort of Mathematical idea of a perfectly um, symmetrical shape. And then you've guessed it, the Holy of Holies, the back room, that is a perfect cube. Ten cubits by ten cubits by ten cubits. And so an Israelite um, would, as they, uh, as they thought about this and as, as uh, um, perhaps they came into the court of the congregation would have this sense of moving towards perfection. 
the courtyard perhaps symbolises uh, is the place for Israel, or, or, or by extension, sometimes in the Bible, it seems to be it seems to symbolise the whole world, the world as it is made by God. But as they get, as they um, uh, imagine the holy place, they are moving into the vicinity of God, God a place of greater um, greater holiness, greater perfection. And as they imagine the most holy place, they are heading towards the place of perfect perfection. Interestingly, that mirrors the whole of the rest of the story of the Bible. Um, the book of Revelation describes, uh, for instance, the world um, in very much the kind of language of the tabernacle. But the end point of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, has a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, a perfected human community, and it is an enormous cube. A cube big enough to hold all the peoples of the world. Symbolically then, that little holy of holies has now expanded to contain all uh, people from every tribe and nation under heaven. And finally, God has perfected his new creation. That is where the story of the Bible is going. But for now, the Holy of Holies is a confined and limited space within a wider world. As we approach that, we are approaching perfection then. But then the tabernacle declares again and again, we are also approaching royalty. I don't know whether you noticed bronze, silver and gold getting mentioned when, when Catherine was reading. It's extremely carefully coordinated where, what metal is used where. So the base of all the outer uh, um, posts to hold up the, uh, the, the courtyard, the bases, which of course just sit on the ordinary common land, they're made of bronze. But the top of those posts and all the fittings are made of silver. Interestingly, when you get to the holy place, the base of the, the stands is to be silver. But the tops and especially the inside of the holy and especially the most holy place, they are gold. So you're moving then towards royalty from common metals to the most precious metals. And it's symbolised as well in the, in the colours that are used. The, uh, uh, there is, there is uh, blue, purple and scarlet on uh, this gate so that although the rest is just ordinary common linen, you know you are walking in through the gate through the royal gate as you come into the tabernacle. And then on the, the, uh, the two curtains that follow, the curtain into the holy place and the curtain into the holy of holies, the in, in fact the whole of the inside of the holy place and the holy of holies is blue, purple and red. But more than that, once you're in the holy place, you would see embroidered into, in gold into those fabrics cherubim, guarding angels guarding the presence of God himself. We are moving towards royalty as we approach God. And uh, some of the details of uh, of the furnishings are associated with that as well. Inside the holy place, 
Um, you may not be able to see it. It says shoe bread table. That's an old word. There was a table, a table that was um, covered in gold. Gold because actually, really, it's associated with the, the most holy place, the inner sanctum, but, it, but it's brought out so that people can have access to it. Um, and, and that table had bread on it all the time. It was called the bread of the presence and it had to be perpetually there. It was eaten by the priests. It was, a, it was in a symbolic way symbolising eating at the king's table. The great privilege that ancient peoples had. And here the, the priests as they entered the holy place could, could eat at the king's table. You're approaching royalty. The ark as well, the, the box that contained the, uh, uh, the tablets of the covenant and some other things is, uh, and, uh, and, uh, is right in that most holy place at the centre. It is covered in gold. It has, has, has um, gold models of, of angels, these cherubim on either side and it is a royal throne. Here is the king, the royal ruler of Israel dwelling amongst his people. As you approach the most holy place, you approach perfection, you approach royalty. But there's another overtone of this as well going on. As you approach that most holy place, you approach as well a new creation. For instance, I mentioned those, those cherubim, didn't I? Those angels um, woven into the, uh, the fabric in the, in the holy place, guarding the place, to the, the, the curtain to the, to the most holy place. Um, uh, you start at the 10. Who can tell me where the cherubim first appear in the Bible? Just to wake you up. Ida, Ida can. Um, let's, let's get someone who's less senior than Ida or Richard and Catherine, see if we can prove it. Look, all the Bible scholars are. John, uh, John Fenning, go on. You're, you're the youngest hand to go up yet. Yeah. They guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden and stop Adam and Eve returning to that perfect place that God set up. And here they are guarding the way to the, to the most holy place, to the presence of God. Is it perhaps guarding the way back to a new creation as it was meant to be? The um, lampstand, which is also in the holy place, there's, uh, you, you can see it there to the a little indication of it to, to the left. Let me, let me read to you the description of it. Um, chapter 25, verse 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold. We know what that means. It really belongs to the most holy place. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next, and the same for all six branches extending from the, the, the lampstand. Here, here is a, a beautiful, the menorah, the, 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 is a beautiful seven-lighted uh, lampstand. 
but it is also intended to be look like a tree. Um, with, in fact, to look like an almond tree. Many people suggest um, that uh, it is meant to recall the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Just as an interesting historical aside, it may be that the sweet almond was the very first cultivated plant that human beings ever cultivated. And so it's not, it it, it fits perhaps with an ancient folk memory to have the tree of life united with this image of the almond tree. It gives off light though. This tree of life, this this almond tree. Seven lights, perhaps, could it be the light of the world? So, as you, as you head towards the holy place, of course, for most Israelites, in their imagination, as they read the description of how, it, how it's to be made up, you head back towards the Garden of Eden, back towards a new creation. And that, of course, fits so much with what God is doing today. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, to present you to himself perfect, blameless, spotless, without sin or stain. That is God's intention in your life, to actually take you to him in eternity with all your imperfections washed away so that you will live with him in perfection. God is the great king of the whole universe and his intention for you is to take you to be, to make you now, in fact, a royal priesthood. And finally to take you into his court as an adopted son. And God's great purpose, not only for you, but for his whole creation, is to recreate you. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And that process that God has begun in you now will finally find its fullness when he creates a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation which is actually mirrors the perfections of the Garden of Eden and exceeds them. The tabernacle spoke vividly then of how extraordinary, how amazing, how wonderful it was to come into the presence of God and to live in the presence of God. And it is that squared, multiplied by a thousand for us who live after Jesus. Because we have seen what they could only see in the tiny hints and anticipations and foreshadowings. In one sense, it's easy. God has come, he dwells in the midst. It has just happened. It is amazing. It is extraordinary. The tabernacle shouts that to us. It also says something else very, very important. 
easy as it may be to have God in the midst in one sense, it is also massively difficult to come into his presence itself. The, the, the multiple layers of the curtains that we've already described speaks of that, doesn't it? Especially as you head into the holy place and you see these fiery cherubim, these, these scary angels protecting the final place where God himself is seated on his throne. But there are other details of the, of, of the tabernacle that, that, that reinforce actually what an awesome and difficult thing it is to come into the presence of God. One of them is what's called on this picture the lava. It was a, a big bowl of water. It was used in the rituals of the tabernacle to wash um, things, to wash sacrifices, um, even to, uh, uh, to, to wash the people at times. But, 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 but it had another overtone to it as well. In the, when they set up the lava in the temple, they started calling it, which was the later, more permanent building, they started calling it the sea, as in, as, as in the ocean. The sea for Israelites symbolised the forces of, of, of chaos that separate, that, that are hostile to human beings, in one sense hostile to God, and separate human beings from God, because now we live in a chaotic, fallen world. And the sea was the greatest witness to that. As an Israelite walks through the entrance of the tabernacle, beyond the altar of burnt offering that we'll look at in a moment, he sees a sea separating himself him from God. He is still a long way from God. And then, um, uh, perhaps more prominently, another feature which speaks of how difficult it is to, to live in the presence of God is the altar of uh, sacrifice, the altar of burnt offering that we see there in the outer courtyard. Um, interestingly, it sits in a very significant position in the tabernacle as a whole. And I've got another diagram which may help you to see that. Remember the outer courtyard is two squares and the way that it is set up, the, the centre of those two squares is at two very significant points. The bottom one is of course the altar of burnt offering. But the top one, the top one is the Ark of the Covenant the very throne of God in the most holy place. So the tabernacle, this rectangular tabernacle, has two foci. An altar out there in the courtyard, in the world, in the generality of Israel, amongst the generality of the Israelites, where there's the blood and the gore of, and the smell and the stink of sacrifices. And then the serene, quiet, golden perfection of God himself. The sacrifices we know in Israel were to enable, to pay in a symbolic sense for the sins of the people. 
There was another little altar. It's got this tiny little rectangle just outside the curtain to the most holy place. Another item that actually belonged right in the inner sanctum. It's made of gold, but has been brought out so that people have access to it. It was the altar of incense. There, just displaced from the centre, but belonging to the centre, incense was burnt that sent a sweet smell into the nose of God in their imagination. And so the Israelites lived with this structure that said, you come near God through sacrifice. Sacrifice which here in the world is messy, gory, smelly, nasty. But actually, in what it achieves, it is a sweet sweet smell in the nostrils of God and it enables you to make contact with the living God who is at the other focus of the tabernacle. How vividly it anticipates Jesus, doesn't it? The New Testament makes it very plain that that was just a temporary system that really, that spoke of what was needed but didn't achieve anything. Look at what Hebrews 10, for instance, says. I'll read it to you. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices. We can see them doing that down there, can't we? Which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It needed Jesus. It needed the Son of God to pay, to, to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself that could really fulfil what all these images just in, um, incompletely spoke towards. But we who here who are Christians live the other side where Jesus has died for our sins. In a sense, the tabernacle is defunct now. It never did actually achieve anything. In another sense, it still stands as a marvellous picture that points forward to how you live in the presence of God. Just think of it for a minute, how the New Testament then uh, deals with these three difficulties. The difficulty of the curtain, the difficulty of the laver, the sea, and the difficulty of the, al- the, the, the altar of sacrifice. But well, we dealt with the first one, or oh, the last one, that Jesus died for our sins. But remember what happened when he died for our sins. The curtain of the temple, the successor of the tabernacle, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. No longer did God need to be concealed from us behind the temple curtain. And the third one? The 
the labour, the sea. Well, it's very interesting in the early part of the book of Revelation, John has a vision of God enthroned, actually in a place like a holy of holies, surrounded by cherubim-like angels, and in front of him a, a glassy sea. But by the end of the story of Revelation, God has come to dwell amongst his people and John says, there was no longer any sea. If you're a a believer here, this, this is a pictorial representation of your story. Exodus is your story. When uh, God turned up at the beginning of, uh, uh, of Exodus and, and uh, um, uh, spoke to Moses, that anticipated Jesus turning up and speaking to us. When God rescued is the Israelites um, from Egypt, taking them through the, uh, the, the Red Sea, and on towards the promised land. That was an anticipation of Jesus rescuing us as our Passover land and taking us through to, towards his new creation. When God guided the Israelites through the wilderness, we said that anticipated God's promise to you that he will guide you through the wilderness. Though there may be lots of confusion and lots of difficulty, he will stay alongside us. When God gave Israel, Israel, their their mandate to be a royal priesthood. That is a mandate that falls to you, to be a royal priesthood, to bless the world. When God gave them their charter of freedom, the Ten Commandments, that is your charter of freedom, to live out the freedom that you have. And when God gave them the tabernacle, that is your promise. That God does dwell amongst you, is dwelling amongst you. And one day, actually, you will see him face to face. Now, I want to say to to you, that is the greatest privilege you could ever have. I uh, I want to say to you, there is nothing else worth living for. You know, the presence of uh, uh, an enjoyment of other people, that is great. But you have the presence of God. The, the, the gongs and the wealth and the praise of this world, that is wonderful, but it will fade away. And you have the glory of God to look forward to as you approach perfection, as you approach royalty. So how are you going to live? Are you going to leave here and live as if that was all nothing? Meantime, I need to earn my living. I need to do all sorts of things. You do need to do those things. But you can do them as a person enjoying the presence of God and looking forward to the fullness 
of his presence. How are you going to live? Are you going to take those uh, um, prayers of confession that we made earlier? Reflecting the Ten Commandments and say, oh, that was just a little formality that I went through for a couple of minutes. Or are you going to live as someone who really is sorry and really wants to live as God called you to? How are you going to live? So many people live miserable, half-Christian lives. Because they don't get it. They don't see the glory. They don't see the wonder. They don't see the majesty. They don't see the privilege of what it means to live in the presence of God. And you know, in even greater tragedy, there are people who don't want it at all. They may be here. People who hear these things and yet say thanks but no thanks. Or sometimes it's not so much that they don't want it as they've never heard it. They've never heard of the offer of Jesus. I don't know what your state is before the Lord. But if you're a believer, live it out in the world and let people see what it means to live in the presence of God. And you know, if you're not yet, can't you see you're missing out on the greatest thing that could ever be? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is the most extraordinary thing imaginable that you should choose to dwell amongst us. It is the most amazing thing that you should send your Son, Jesus Christ, to break down the final barriers between yourself and us. so that one day the whole of your universe will be your holy of holies. We ask, Lord, that you will fill our hearts with these things, 
that in areas where we need to repent, we pray that you would help us to put the deeds of darkness behind us. And that you would help us to live as people who are immensely privileged. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.